Talking Feds is sponsored by our friends at Total Wine & More, rewarding curious connoisseurs with a wondrous selection of wine, spirits, and beers. Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials and special guests for a dynamic discussion of the most important political and legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. It was a week when the good, the bad, and the ugly were on full display in the United States Congress. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy sought to place two flamethrowers on the select committee to investigate the insurrection of January 6th. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi promptly vetoed the selections, at which point McCarthy took his ball and went home, promising to form his own committee to look into the true causes of the cataclysmic events. The Democrats in the U.S. Senate moved on two different tracks on infrastructure, attempting to pass separate packages, one huge with fairly strong bipartisan support and the other ginormous with Democrat support only. The Republican minority filibustered the smaller of the two, yet Democrats insisted they had a path forward for enacting both bills. Members of the Senate Judiciary Committee were irate on receipt of a letter from the FBI sent in response to an inquiry they made two years before. The members claimed that the FBI and White House had pulled the wool over the eyes of the committee in the country in the 2018 investigation of the candidacy of Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. To break down both the substance and the politics of these developments, we welcome to Talking Feds a blue ribbon group of expert commentators. And they are. In her first appearance on Talking Feds, Jane Mayer, the chief Washington correspondent at The New Yorker, where she has worked since 1995, before which she was the White House correspondent for The Wall Street Journal. She's the author of multiple books, including the 2016 bestseller, Dark Money, The Hidden History of the Billionaires Behind the Rise of the Radical Right, which The New York Times named as one of the 10 best books of the year. Her work has earned her a long list of major awards, most recently the Nellie Bly Award for Investigative Reporting. Jane, welcome to Talking Feds. Great to be with such august company. <laughs> Norm Ornstein, speaking of which, is a senior fellow emeritus at the American Enterprise Institute, where he focuses on politics, elections, and Congress. For more than 40 years, he's been a major voice in public policy, including especially campaign election reform, and House and Senate reform. He's a reformer. And a frequent guest on a variety of news networks, regular author of articles in many publications, and the author of several books, including most recently, One Nation After Trump, a guide for the perplexed, the disillusioned, the desperate, and the not yet deported. Norm, great to see you as always. As always, Harry. And finally, we're really honored to welcome back to Talking Feds Senator Sheldon Whitehouse. Since 2007, the junior United States Senator from Rhode Island, he previously served as the United States Attorney in the District of Rhode Island from 1993 to 1998, where I think we overlapped for a week or two, and as the 71st Attorney General of Rhode Island from 1999 to 2003 before being elected to the Senate, where he serves on the Judiciary Committee Finance Committee, Environment and Public Works Committee, and the Budget Committee. Senator Whitehouse, thank you very much for returning to Talking Feds. Great to be with you. I'm totally overawed by the company I'm with, but I'll try to keep up. <laughs> Let's dive in with the tumultuous goings-on this week involving the select committee, not commission, to investigate January 6th. So very brief to review the bidding after Senate Republicans blocked a bill that would have formed a 9-11-style bipartisan commission, Speaker Pelosi announced a select committee in the House with eight members of her choice and five to be recommended by House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, subject to Pelosi's veto. So McCarthy names five, including two of the most prominent purveyors of the big lie, Jim Jordan and Jim Banks, whom Pelosi proceeded to veto. So let, let's start there. Do you think McCarthy thought that by naming three relatively reasonable members, reasonable being a relative term here, Pelosi was going to give him a pass 
on the two firebrands? Did he just get outmaneuvered? No. I think McCarthy knew exactly what he was doing. And keep in mind here that one of the things on Kevin McCarthy's mind is being called himself as a witness, which he does not want. And what he wanted to do was to discredit this panel So he very deliberately put on two people who were non-starters. Imagine, Harry, if you were going to do an investigation of Al Capone and the Republican leader said that his members would include Frank Nitti and Machine Gun Kelly. I don't think that that would be acceptable to any panel that was actually looking for the truth. And that's just what Kevin McCarthy did. And more broadly, what we know here is that Republicans on the whole, with very few exceptions in either the House or Senate, don't want a public spotlight on January 6th. Their own members are deeply involved and culpable. Jim Jordan, by the way, being one who consulted with Trump throughout all of this. And they want to turn the focus to other things. So this was a cover-up and an attempt to keep this from being a reasonable investigation. Do you think he realized that she would bounce them? I mean, now they've got to do their own separate kind of rinky-dink commission or committee, whatever it'll be, the, the let's find the true killers little committee that I don't think anyone will listen to. But maybe it was a forced move. It's hard to imagine his proffering five that didn't include some of these jokers. So I understand what they wanted to do. But do you think in his calculation, she was going to swallow and and let them on? Or he knew that uh, she would bounce them and it was just sort of for screaming rights? You know, he was poised to have a press conference right after this happened. He knew exactly what he was going to say. I think, in my mind, there's no doubt that he did this knowing that this would blow it up, and he could then just try to discredit this panel as a partisan effort. And I have to say, too many in the news media, starting with my friend Chris Saliza, bought this and basically said, oh, Speaker Pelosi, now there can't be a bipartisan effort, as if having Jim Jordan and Banks would make it bipartisan. So he may get away with this a little bit more than he should have. The only thing I would add is that instead of the Al Capone analogy, I might go with the cat in the hat and getting thing one and thing two out of the house is probably a good thing to do. Well, it's a very good thing to do, right? I mean, this is what I'm trying to say is that now there'll be, and there always was going to be these gripes about it's a partisan effort. But in addition now, there'll be bona fide hearings with witnesses and questions and Jordan not standing up and grandstanding. And if the country continues to have some resolve to wanting to find out the truth, they can actually go forward, make headway, produce a report, et cetera. And so his ability to obstruct is pretty well surrendered. Don't the Dems wind up much better for this? At the end of the day, the history of congressional investigations have been that they've had historic effect or no effect, depending on the substance of what they've brought forward. I think this actually empowers Speaker Pelosi to run a more effective investigation. Nobody cares how it's set up at this point. The question is, what does it produce? What do the American people learn from it? We're going to see, I think, McCarthy and all of the other Republicans, from Green to Paul Gosar to Mo Brooks, and those who actively connive to make this violent insurrection happen, refuse to testify. They're critical voices. And it becomes an interesting question of whether you will have a House that's willing to hold its own members in contempt, and then whether you have an ethics committee, which is evenly divided, that would be willing to take the kind of action that ought to be done for people who stonewall their own members. I think to the extent there's precedent, it clearly can be called. But what's going to happen when, even after ethics committee, they raise some phony baloney constitutional claim Jane, this is sort of the old playbook from impeachment, and it might be spurious legally, but it takes a few years to run out the clock, and by then the investigation is stymied or stale. What can the committee do in response? I mean, I'm sure that they will try to do that. I mean, it's all about sort of performative playing to their audience. I kind of wonder why 
it didn't take the route of an outside experts instead. Because I, I do think it's it's somewhat problematical to have members investigating members, which is really what we want to know. And what's left to know in this? I think what we want to know is about the collaboration between anybody who was in elected life, whether it was Trump or anybody on the Hill, and the criminals who, who ransacked the, the Congress. I can see why Pelosi's doing this and why the Democrats want to get to the bottom of this. They have a huge interest as do all Americans, really, I think, in getting to the bottom of this. But it might have been better if it was sort of an outside panel, because then when they stonewall, it looks even worse. This way, it, it just looks like they're thrumming the nose of their opponents across the aisle. Yeah, pox on both houses is the possible reaction. They start with all the law enforcement officers. Any sense where they want to go from there? Is it all sketched out or are they going to be improvising? You got me. I mean, I assume you start one of these things with a general plan, but depending on what you're developing behind the scenes, you improvise as you go to try to, again, produce a result that is memorable. So I think their challenge is even greater. And I agree with Jane. And I think the reason that Mitch McConnell and the Senate Republicans filibustered to death a commission that gave in to every demand the Republicans had wanted, including their ability to block subpoenas, is because they knew that an outside panel would have more clout. And their subpoenas, once they could get them, would be more powerful. And I'm worried here that we're going to see almost every actor who's culpable in this refuse the subpoena, how many they can hold in contempt and whether they can do anything with it and not have it stretched out is going to be a very difficult challenge for them. But the big plus here is most Americans don't think back to January 6th, and they don't focus on this in a large way anyhow. This gives a public focus to something that's extraordinarily important, and that in a larger sense, Republicans just want to forget about it because of their own culpability in an armed insurrection. Uh, More than just forget about it, maybe cover it up. Change the subject, right. It's not the least bit clear that There was no legislator who was in contact with the organizers of the riot and conspired or colluded with them to object to all these votes in order to keep the time frame open for the riot to succeed at disrupting the election. We don't know that yet. And if that did happen, that's a pretty important thing to find out. And going to Jane's point, there will be preliminaries that will be relatively frictionless But they're going to reach a point, and probably pretty soon, where you have the first obstructionist witness who brings a court claim. And that's the stress point and the worry. I think as long as they're there, this will have the kind of gravity and national attention that previous commissions have had. And that's one of the reasons why McCarthy is in worse shape, I think, by having taken his ball and go home. There's a phrase that I really like that somebody wrote about the problem in Washington now, at least from the standpoint of the press, is we have what he called frozen scandals. And what you used to have is a scandal, often the press would have exposed it, and then Congress would have hearings and take action, whether it was the scandals inside the CIA and you had the church committee that then investigated it. And what bipartisanship brought was seriousness of purpose and consequences. And now what you've got are these frozen scandals where the press can show the spotlight sometimes on scandals, but because Congress isn't working, that dysfunction means there's no consequence. Everything gets tied up. The public never gets to see anybody held to account. It's just this dysfunctional obstruction on the Hill. And that's what I fear will happen here. And it's really a loss because historically, you're not going to have a record that you need to have something this serious has to be investigated seriously. But instead, it's, you know, in danger of being turned into another, you know, circus. Still, there's still some pretty good topics to explore. One very good one would be the Secret Service. I'm sure that there is information from the Secret Service detail around Vice President Pence and their communications with the White House that is a matter of record that could be disclosed without divulging any 
improper sources or methods or compromising the ability of the Secret Service to defend the president or the vice president. And that's a hell of a tale if you can bring that out. A hearing on that, I think, would uh, get a lot of people to the televisions around the country. Ditto for the afternoon of the 6th when Trump is, you know, watching with jubilation. Jane, your point seems so right to me. It's not just the absence of consequences. It's the absence of resolve to actually produce the historical account. That's what seems most galling to me in a democracy, that we're sitting here and it'll fall to historians to write drafts with their own slants on things. There was in the wake, certainly of Watergate, 9-11, the Iran-Contra, at least some consensus to plumb the depths of what happened. And here that even that basic mission is being, you know, made a joke of by 30, 40 percent, whatever, of the legislators. Two points. One is to follow up on what Sheldon said. We have testimony from one of the instigators of this that he worked together with at least three members of the House, including Paul Gosar and Mo Brooks. We know that some members of the House, including Marjorie Taylor Greene, held tours of the Capitol, which were not allowable at the time because of COVID, with some of the people who were rioters. And we know that some members shared maps of the inside of the Capitol so that hideaway offices with no markings on them, they went right to them. So there is real collusion here. The second thing is the collusion between top officials put in place by Trump right before this happened, who deliberately delayed sending the National Guard, leaving the Capitol Police and the DC Police overmatched, outmanned, and embattled we know that people like Kash Patel and others, including the acting Secretary of Defense, put in after the Secretary of Defense was pushed out, were a part of this. Can we get emails within the Defense Department, with the White House, with the President, with Mark Meadows, with others, that show that this was a direct attempt to try and make it more difficult to defend the Capitol? Getting access to those documents and to those people becomes absolutely critical here. I think there is something much deeper and more pernicious that went on here. This was planned in advance to try and overturn the results of an election. And getting to the bottom of who did it and holding them accountable is absolutely key to whether it does or doesn't happen again. So, Norm, since you're the, the congressional expert, what would you expect to be the consequence if it turns out that House members actually colluded with the rioters? Look, let's face it. The consequence should be expulsion and it should be prosecution. Expulsion takes two thirds. It's happened before. It's happened in our lifetimes before. We've seen members expelled. It's not gonna happen now because the Republicans are all in on this. So the question then becomes whether the Justice Department is going to be willing to prosecute members of Congress under these circumstances. Now, we've seen members of Congress prosecuted before, usually over financial misconduct, bribery, abscam being a good example, William Jefferson being another one. That's uh, penny-ante stuff compared to planning an insurrection to overturn an election in the United States, and that could have killed many members of Congress and the vice president. But I don't know if we're going to see Merrick Garland's Justice Department willing to go forward with that either. Let me make one nerdy legal point, which is if they were found to have supported an insurrection, they should be disqualified under the constitutional disqualification clause, that is, when it comes time to run again it's a textbook action by anyone in their states or in Congress, a majority vote to disqualify them going forward. And there's strong precedent for that if they were really found. So that would be a, a solid remedy. One other feature here is that for Merrick Garland to want to proceed with respect to misconduct by legislators raises all sorts of speech and debate, separation of powers concerns. But if it's a legislative body, all those concerns evaporate. And while Jordan and Banks may not respond to a subpoena from the Speaker of the House and from the committee, a lot of email services might, and you may be able to get some pretty interesting traffic between members and their offices and conspirers and rioters so that you don't actually have to have them cooperate. You do what any good investigator would do, which is you dig out the material first 
I love it when the senator goes back to his prosecutorial roots. Yeah, well, I'm going there too because, look, I, I think we all appreciate Garland came in with no stomach for stepping on the hornet's nest of all these old prosecutions. The 1-6 investigation is the biggest in the history of the department. You simply cannot go all the way to run the table on the actual insurrectionists and then stop if there's any kind of evidence to pursue, even up to and including... The president. That doesn't mean they'll indict, but they are going to have to go there, it seems to me. So that will at least speak to this question. There are rumblings from within the Justice Department that this investigation is not being pursued by the criminal division. It's fallen under the National Security Division, I guess, and that it's not being pursued with the same sort of vigor that it might be. I've heard some sort of complaints already. I don't buy it. Do you buy that, Senator? I, I just can't see it there. And then I know some people from within. Clearly at the beginning, they wanted this to be what I would call a mopes and dopes investigation, which you just round up all the yahoos on the street and bring them in and you charge them for trespass and whatever. And then everybody started hollering and saying, wait a minute, there's probably more to this than meets the eye. And you guys know how to do investigations where you go upstream to the kingpins, to the ringleaders, to the organizers and all that. And all we've seen so far in terms of, you know, conspiracy investigations has been conspiracy among the mopes and dopes. It's just like an added count among the people who were there. So it'll be interesting to see if they bring anybody in ever who was not in the building. And that, to me, is a test of their seriousness. Yes. Yeah, but I don't think it'll be for lack of trying hard. The people who are working on this, and one thing Garland really has done, is give leeway to the professionals. This is the biggest case of their lives. There's a common theme, I think, in both of these, and then let's let's move on, which is there's a mopes and dopes equivalent in the committee as well in terms of the certain stories, interesting stories that you can mow down, but if the heart of darkness here really is at the level of Giuliani, Trump Jr., even Trump himself, whether there'll be both the resolve and the political wherewithal to push through becomes in, in real doubt. Okay, can we leave it there for now, just because uh, there's so much to, to talk about this week and move on to the infrastructure bills. We're on this double track where there's the scaled-down version that there's hope will pass with bipartisan support, and then the much more muscular one of $3.5 trillion with, among other things, importantly, a lot of climate change provisions. But it all seems to me very, for such a big bill, pretty open-ended. Am I wrong there? In agreeing to the $3.5 trillion, the members meeting in the Budget Committee room those two nights Many of us had a pretty good idea of the categories that the funding was going to go into. And even within those categories, some of the key projects and initiatives that they would be expanding or funding. And I think when agreement is finally reached here, that conversation has continued. Leader Schumer is continuing it. The chairs of the committees who are going to be writing the reconciliation measures are actively talking through what they want and how to do it. And going back to Chuck and knocking on his door saying, we want more. And so I think that's very vibrant. And I think by the time we get it passed, there'll be a fairly clear, if informal, understanding of where the funds will go. And it becomes an issue of writing it up and hammering down the final details and making sure that any final squawkers are taken care of. But I think under the surface, there's a lot more clarity about what is going to be done and it just doesn't serve anybody's interest to put that into writing right now and keep it a little bit loose. So I think it's actually working about the way it's supposed to. Let me switch gears to then the smaller scaled down one. Some people might have been surprised that Schumer brought it to a vote a couple of days ago, knowing that they would or, or was the hope that they wouldn't filibuster it right away. What's the strategy there in, in seeming to accelerate that process? two senses that the strategy was to give the process a boot in the ass, which it did. And the process responded by picking up pace and giving the promise that they'd have a deadline in fairly short order. We're talking about the bipartisan group of... Yeah. Chuck's obvious concern is that this is Lucy in the football and nothing ever comes together. And his term as majority leader evaporates into the vortex. So I don't think that's going to happen at this point. It still could. Is Lucy here Senator Manchin? No, no, no. 
McConnell. It's Mitch McConnell. McConnell is losing. We've been through this kind of dance before. We did it for months with the Affordable Care Act, with Grassley and Enzi dragging things out when they had no intention of reaching a deal. We saw it uh, after Obama's re-election when a group of senators uh, led by Bob Corker and others told Obama, look, if you just give in on Social Security and Medicare to some degree, well, we'll come up with taxes. And every time he did, they kept moving that football and it stretched it out for months. So this could stretch out for many months without anything happening and you lose a lot of momentum. And I think what Schumer did is just as uh, Senator Whitehouse suggested, it's to pretty much give him a deadline and then we'll see if there's anything serious here. There's one other point that I think ought to be made, which is that as this is moving forward, the debt ceiling is up again, looming, and it's the same dance that we've seen before, that Republicans are trying to use it as a hostage to bludgeon Democrats into cutting spending and going back and cutting Medicare and Social Security and Medicaid again, and that can't happen. But I think, and here, Senator Whitehouse, a message uh, for all of you, this is a time to implement, finally, what is ironically called the McConnell Rule, which McConnell did when there was a Republican president, which is that the president raises the debt ceiling, Congress can disapprove with a resolution of disapproval, but it can be vetoed and it would take two-thirds to override. So that would end forever this willingness that's only a Republican willingness. Democrats often will vote against raising the debt ceiling. It becomes a symbolic kind of thing, but with no serious intention of actually seeing the full faith and credit of the United States get blown up. That's a very different matter on the other side. So it's really time, and the way to do it, I think, is just bite the bullet in reconciliation and finally get this issue off the table. Yeah, I described this as the bear trap in the bedroom. It's there. It's immensely dangerous. Nobody actually wants to trigger it in their right mind, but they do want to threaten it. And every once in a while, you put your toe down on the bear trap further and further, and suddenly, whack! And now the whole country has a nightmare. So we'll all be better off once the bear trap is thrown out the window and nobody can put their full faith and credit of the country at risk any longer using these political stunts. Are you guys um, optimistic that there will be either the bipartisan infrastructure deal or some version of the Democratic deal that actually passes? Both. Wow. I think Norton's analogy to Obamacare is apt. And in particular, it seems like a lot's riding for Biden. He's had a pretty rosy picture to date, justifiably. But if both pass or the big one passes, I think he almost seals the deal on a successful first term. But if it goes down, it's a pretty big body blow, no? If both of these pass, and it's not just climate change, it's extending the child tax credit, which has cut child poverty in half. It's the most effective thing done on poverty, I think, probably since the war on poverty started. If we get both of these things along with the American Rescue Plan that passed, you're talking about a record that is pretty much a parallel to the great society, except it wasn't done with swollen Democratic majorities in both houses. And don't forget glasses, dentures, and hearing aids for seniors. People really appreciate when they can see and hear and chew. But probably not robust stuff on climate change? No, very robust stuff on climate. Improving every day. We already got my methane fee in, which leaps to being the third strongest intervention. The uh, signal of a border adjustment is really powerful and significant and a very important thing to have in mind when they hit Glasgow in November. And we're continuing to negotiate for stronger and stronger climate measures. Well, I love your, your optimism, but I, so what is the motive for Mitch McConnell to enable this to happen? Or do you think he won't be able to stop it? I think the, the bipartisan piece seems to be holding. And I think the Republicans involved in it have been resolute under a lot of pressure. And if it moves quickly, I think that they'll close that deal. It'll pass in the Senate. It'll go and sit in Speaker Pelosi's office awaiting further activities. And then Mitch has no vote other than how late the morning of the following day he wants to keep us on the stupid Voterama exercise. But we hold 50 Democrats and we do the 3.5 trillion and Mitch can't do a damn thing about it. 
So this is ultimately within our hands. It's not an easy decision for the Republicans to say, we're going to take down the bipartisan bill. We're going to look like fools. It's going to pass anyway. The Democrats are going to get all the credit and we're going to be voting against stuff that we agreed to and negotiated for when we oppose the Democratic bill. That's not a great outcome for them either. I think the, the Republicans saw that if they simply opposed every element of infrastructure, that would not be a good look, as Sheldon said. And this next time, the ability to take credit for things that you voted against, which a lot of them tried to do in the American Rescue Plan, wouldn't work as well. I'm still not sold that there are going to be 10 Republicans willing to go along with this when it finally gets to the floor. And I'm not sold that when it gets to the House, that Speaker Pelosi will just sit on it and then get her Democrats willing to vote for it. It'll be changed in the House and that might not get through. And when are we projecting? When does this pivotal showdown in the House occur as you guys see it? Well, it's not going to occur until the Senate passes the 3.5. Right. That would be August. That strikes me as very soon. Do you th Really, you think that's plausible? We do the reconciliation instructions in August, and we do the bipartisan measure in August, and then we come back in September, October, however long it takes to work out the details of the $3.5 a conversation in which Speaker Pelosi is a very important piece because we know this ends up in her hands. So with any luck, if this is done well and smoothly, the $3.5 trillion piece with what the House needs in it to support the combined package goes over to her. And if I were her, I'd package the two into one bill, put on the floor and let the Republicans vote against it all. All right, let's leave it there for now. We're talking mainly about parliamentary maneuvers, but just to second what Norm said, I mean, we're, we're really talking about the prospect of great society level social reform and an adjustment in the kind of society that, that we are. Okay, it's now time to take a moment for our sidebar feature, which explains some of the issues and relationships that are prominent in the news. Today's topic is something we're hearing about all the time these days, but rarely is fully explained, namely the filibuster. And to explain it, we're really pleased to welcome Adam Scott. Adam Scott's an American actor, comedian, producer, and podcaster. He's best known for his role as Ben Wyatt in Parks and Recreation, which earned him two Critics' Choice Award nominations, as well as his roles in shows such as Big Little Lies and The Good Place, and films such as Step Brothers and The Aviator. I give you Adam Scott on the filibuster. 51 votes are required to pass a bill in the Senate, but Senate rules provide that 60 votes are required to end debate, or as the Senate calls it, to invoke cloture. That difference provides an opportunity for legislators to delay and often halt Senate action. As long as a senator holds the floor and 60 other senators don't vote to end debate, a bill cannot move to a vote. That tactic of preventing passage of a bill by refusing to end debate is known as a filibuster. The filibuster empowers the minority power in the Senate to obstruct legislative action. And as the Senate has become increasingly polarized, the use of the filibuster has burgeoned. There have been over 2,000 filibusters since 1917 when a cloture rule first passed. Before then, debate could go on forever. But about half of those 2,000 filibusters have been in the last 12 years. And given the population disparities in the states, the 26 least populous states are home to just 17% of the U.S. population, the filibuster can prevent a group of senators representing a distinct minority of citizens to impose gridlock on passage of bills with broad public support, such as voting rights, health care, climate change, and gun control. The Senate itself can reform the use of filibuster by majority vote, including by changing the number of votes required to close debate, as it did in 1975. It can also restrict its use in certain settings, for example, Supreme Court appointments. The filibuster has historically been used to hamper legislation targeting discrimination, with former President Obama referring to it as a Jim Crow relic. Today, the filibuster is being employed by Republicans in the Senate to prevent cloture and thus passage of voting rights legislation. 
What can be done to reform or end the filibuster? Well, the most obvious would be a change in Senate rules. For example, to reduce the number of votes to close debate from the current 60 to 55, either generally or with respect to specific actions. A change in Senate rules requires a supermajority of senators, i.e. 67 of the 100-member body. There is another way that senators have devised to reform the filibuster with a mere majority vote. It is the so-called nuclear option. The Republicans used the nuclear option to eliminate the filibuster for Supreme Court appointments and thus permitted each of the Trump appointees to gain confirmation with fewer than 60 votes. To do it, the Senate Majority Leader brings a non-debatable motion for a vote and then raises a point of order, which is subject to a simple majority, and that cloture can be invoked. If that seems confusing, don't worry. The point to remember is just that a bare majority can reform the filibuster in particular areas, and the Democrats could do that today for voting rights. For Talking Feds, I'm Adam Scott. Thank you very much, Adam Scott. You'll be able to catch Adam on a brand new TV series, Severance, about a company looking to take work-life balance to a new low, coming your way soon. Adam otherwise foregoes mention of any projects in favor of a general plea to all to please get vaccinated. And I'll just add to his message the amazing fact that of current COVID fatalities in this country, 99% are unvaccinated people. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we crack open the topic of aging wine in traditional oak barrels versus stainless steel tanks. There are many types of oak from various countries, but in general, oak is the most pliable wood, great for forming a barrel and even better for storing liquids. Oak barrels have a limited life cycle though, whereas stainless steel can be used over and over, point for stainless. There's also new oak, which has a tendency to give wine the complexities that make it interesting, adding spice aromas such as coconut and vanilla, or even hints of allspice and cinnamon. On the other hand, old oak doesn't pick up much flavor, but it does give the wine a softer texture. Stainless steel, on the other hand, is exactly what you'd expect. Clean and contemporary, adding little to the wine, in a good way that is. Wines aged in stainless tanks are crisp and focused, allowing the fresh fruit flavor to shine for the truest expression of the grape. So, who wins in oak versus stainless? Why not pick up one of each at your local Total Wine and you decide. And remember, always think interesting, drink interesting. Let's move to investigating the Kavanaugh investigation. So again, just briefly, we all remember when Justice Kavanaugh's confirmation prospects were hanging by a thread after the testimony of Dr. Ford that the teenage Kavanaugh had sexually assaulted her, and the FBI in a total cauldron of political controversy was given the mission of doing some reinvestigation about the bona fides of Dr. Ford's charges. So we know what happened, including the angry man screaming approach that successfully kept Kavanaugh in play. But now some people, some of them are here, in fact, and some of them are in the Senate, didn't let it just evaporate. But Senator Whitehouse and Senator Coons wrote a letter to the FBI Eh, 2019, what's a couple years between friends, that was finally answered. So let's begin here, because that's what's really erupted in the last couple days. You say that the supplemental investigation, as it turns out, was a sham. Strong word. How come? Well, primarily because the FBI's solution to, for a couple of days, being impermeable to information which is very unusual and weird behavior for an FBI whose job is to collect and gather information. Nobody was allowed to bring any information in regarding Kavanaugh and under pressure from me and Coons and others, they cooked up this idea that there was gonna be a tip line through which the information was gonna come in, the corroborating information, other information about various sexual misconduct at Yale and all that other stuff. Did you know that at the time? Was that to mollify you at the time, the tip line? In part, yep. Yeah. And uh, the whole thing, kind of stank 
We got that really quick look at the documents. It was like speed dating through 12 piles of documents in an hour. And we got at least a look that there had been a bunch of stuff that came in through the tip line, some of which looked like it was actually credible stuff. But nobody never looked at it. So we dug out that the FBI actually has tip line procedures, and then they refused to answer questions about whether they'd followed them. So it really started to smell pretty fishy. And as it turned out, and as I had predicted, this was not a tip line. This was a tip dump. And the tips went in the top of the garbage chute and they all got run straight through the FBI without investigation and then over to White House counsel where they spilled out into the trash bin there for exactly zero further investigation. And the FBI let this happen despite knowing full well the White House counsel's conflict of interest regarding getting a legitimate investigation into Kavanaugh's allegations. Okay, and so now what are they saying? They finally did produce a letter with apologies for being slightly late. So now what's their defense? Their defense is Trump. When we said we were going by the book and when we said we were following all of our procedures, what we meant was we're following the procedure and nominations hearings of doing whatever we're told by the White House. That was not obviously made clear at the time and the language lends itself more readily to a different reading, but that's what they're backpedaling to now. We was only following orders. Yeah, and by the way, everyone knew it at the time who was following it closely that what was critical was whom they would talk to, including, by the way, Kavanaugh, who you know might have might have been uh, facing perjury charges, depending on what he said. But there were people who were obvious to talk to, and they said flat out, because this is the issue I was paying most attention to, that the FBI could go where they go, which, by the way, is what the FBI does. Standard question in every interview is, who else should we talk to? Doesn't matter what they're investigating. So it, it's the most artificial constraint you can think of for an FBI agent to be told, ask these three questions and then go home. Jane, I think you've got a few thoughts on your mind about this. Well, I just want to say as someone who was covering it at the time, how even though people knew at the time it was a bit of a sham, I I think this is shocking and unacceptable. And I was interviewing people at the time who wanted to be interviewed by the FBI. They had pertinent and really serious allegations that they wanted the FBI to look into. They had trust that the government was going to look into it because it was important and serious. And they trusted the government. And I mean, I think this is really unacceptable behavior on the part of the FBI here. You're damning the FBI here more than the White House counsel. Yeah, because they went along with it was a sham. It was a whitewash. It was a cover up. There were a lot of very well-intentioned people who had information they wanted to have investigated about Kavanaugh at the time. There were people who felt they couldn't come forward, but they were subpoenaed. They would come forward if they were asked by the FBI. They would tell what they knew. They wanted to speak confidentially to the FBI. They were willing to do it under oath. I mean, these were serious people who had serious information. And they reached out in some cases to the FBI, or they had attorneys reach out to the FBI. And what did the FBI do with that? Nothing. They just passed it on to the White House, which was, as Senator Whitehouse said, tossing it in the garbage and maybe even taking note of who these potential witnesses were so that they could damn them later. Although they haven't taken out the trash. There's a chance that those will, in fact, be seen. I mean, they now are the repository of the current White House counsel. I want to just probe this a little bit more. The FBI does have this notion of we have a client for background investigations. So I thought the really rank injustice was to represent to the country, supposedly as a political capitulation, that there was going to be a real short investigation and then to have countermanded it to the Bureau. Just following it through, Jane, so the White House counsel at the time tells the Bureau, talk to these four and nobody else. What's your view of what should have happened? That Chris Ray should have blown the whistle? Or, or why do you see the Bureau and not basically Don McGahn as the bad guy here? The Bureau set up what looked like they were saying, we're interested now in hearing what everybody might know about Brett Kavanaugh. And that sent a message to people who I was interviewing at the time. Finally, there's a way I can get this information across. 
and they tried. And I interviewed many people who called that tip line and they were never called back. And I know from my own reporting that some of those people had very pertinent information that was important about his behavior at Yale that very much corroborated what Debbie Ramirez told Ronan Barrow and myself. This was stuff that I think if it had came out at the time, I think it might have changed history. I don't know. Uh, at least I think that, that the Senate had a right to review it and take it into account and the public should have known it. But instead, it was all swept under the rug. And I think it's damning of the FBI's, you know, you think that they are the people who, without fear or favor, are going to go dig into all pertinent information. And this turned out to just be nothing of the kind. And I think they took a hit to their reputation deservedly for this. And I hope that the rules, whatever, when they say they're following the book, I hope it was rewritten. The book here turns out to be, oh, we do what the White House told us to. First, I agree with Jane. I think this is a corrupted investigation and it goes right to the top. And Chris Ray has to be held responsible. Wait, wait, wait. The top of the FBI? You see them as the principal villain here, huh? Well, no, I, I see Don McGahn as uh, culpable as well. This is basically obstructing justice. But there are two other points here. One is we know that there was a kind of cover-up at the National Archives. We had a crony of Bush and Kavanaugh's put in place of vetting all of the documents from the time when Kavanaugh in the Bush administration was working on judicial nominations and he said to the Senate in his confirmation for the appeals court and for the Supreme Court that he had no connections to Manny Miranda the Senate staffer on the Republican side who hacked into Democratic emails and used them to try and influence confirmation hearings. If it turns out, as very likely these emails show, that he lied to the Senate in both confirmation hearings, that is even more disqualifying for a justice of the Supreme Court than the sexual misconduct that is there in the allegations. The second point is he had a huge debt and he was on a public salary for years, and that debt just disappeared. We do not know who paid that debt. We don't know whether there's a corrupt relationship there. There is so much that was covered up in these hearings, more than I think any other Supreme Court justice, that would suggest this is not a man fit for the Supreme Court. The worst thing that happened here was the White House promised and represented it was going to be an unrestricted investigation and then countermanded the FBI, told him what to do. And I'm not sure how the FBI breaks loose from that, but, but I, I see the point. The FBI did loan the White House its credibility by saying it was doing things by the book and doing things according to regulations, and they weren't even doing it according to standard practice for nominations. You're right, but they were more specific than that was the White House. They can talk to whomever they want. And that was just complete BS. But anyway, Senator Whitehouse, I, you know, I guess having gotten the letter, you're, you and, and Senator Coons are kind of going to let it drop now. <laughs> yeah, just like I let it drop for the last two years. Exactly. What, so what's ahead? What are the next possible moves? And especially, are we going to see Don McGahn called to testify? Ferret out the details so that we know exactly what happened from the FBI side first. They, they, we're talking about public hearings? Uh, Chris Ray has been called to a hearing already. It's been announced by, uh, in the Nasser matter. It's going to be a long day for him. And then once we find out what we need to know out of the DOJ and the FBI, then we can answer, ask some interesting questions of uh, Don McGahn about what happened at the other end of the garbage chute, where all of these well-meaning, appropriate, pertinent, significant tips that Jane described just poured out onto the White House floor and got broomed out into the bin. You anticipate any flack from within the caucus saying, oh, you know, Sheldon, give it a rest? They would, I'm just quoting what they would say. I would say, Senator Whitehouse, do you anticipate? No. All right, Jane, any final thoughts on this topic? As someone who covered the Clarence Thomas and Anita Hill hearings, and it's coming up on some major anniversary, I believe, I guess I think it's depressing to think that the process has not improved and it's never too late. I would like to see this process improved. That's a whole nother episode, actually, because what will happen with the commission and is that just merely cosmetic? There's a, you know, a lot to be thinking about, including I'm overall against it, but you've stated the best argument, I think, for actually changing life tenure in these 18-year terms. So the stakes wouldn't be so high and everyone would, everything wouldn't be a blood war. 
So um, I think we can be confident that this won't be the last on this word. Uh, and we'll watch, especially the Senator and Senator Coons. We just have a couple of minutes left for our final feature of Five Words or Fewer, where we take a question from a listener, and each of us has to answer in five words or fewer. So today's question comes from Nick Pescatore, who asked, who should be most worried by the indictment of longtime Trump close friend Tom Barrick? His contacts in... Trump's circle. Okay, perfect. Wow. Don Jr., other family inauguration corruption. That's six, but okay. I meant Don Jr. is one word. <laughs> Fair enough. Junior, just Junior. Okay. Also, justice officials who hit it. <laughs> wow. Oh, I'll say not clear. Jared and Ivanka. We are out of time. Thank you very much to Jane, Norm, and Senator Whitehouse for a fantastic and very full discussion. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. You can check us out on the web, TalkingFeds.com, where we have full episode transcripts. And you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post discussions about special topics exclusively for supporters. And these aren't simply outtakes or ad-free episodes, though we do have those, but original one-on-one discussions with national experts about sundry, interesting subjects. Just in the last few days, we've posted discussions with great experts about the International Criminal Court, the new DACA case, the Tom Barrick indictment, and the first sentencing for a January 6th felon. So there's really a wealth of great stuff there. You can go look at it to see what's there and then decide if you'd like to subscribe. Submit your questions to questions at talkingfeds.com, whether it's for five words or fewer or general questions about the inner workings of the legal and political systems for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Jennifer Bassett and Record Edit Podcast. Our editors are Dustin Naus and Matt McArdle. David Lieberman, Rosie Don Griffin, and Olivia Henriksen are our contributing writers. Research assistance by Abby Meyer. Andrea Carla Michaels is our consulting producer. Thanks very much to Adam Scott for explaining the filibuster in our sidebar feature. Our gratitude is always to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. See you next time.